Please turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, this morning we will be looking at the first 18 verses. This is God's word. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Back in 2007, there was a documentary that came out that was called The Lost Tomb of Jesus. And in this documentary, I hope you don't remember it, you probably don't remember it, but in the documentary there were supposed archaeologists who claimed that they had found the family tomb of Jesus. And in that supposed family tomb of Jesus, there were nine ossuaries. Now, we don't use ossuaries, but ossuaries, what they do with ossuaries is when, a, when they put a body in the grave, they put it, they prepare it and put it in the grave, but then after the body is decayed, what they would do is to conserve space in the graves, they would take the, the remains, the bones that were left, and put them in a smaller box called an ossuary. And so there were nine of these ossuaries in this cave, and on the, the inscriptions that were on the boxes, supposedly... They said that these inscriptions meant that one of those ossuaries contained the remains at one time of Jesus. Another one contained the remains of 
Mary Magdalene, who they think from they, they thought from the inscriptions meant that this was his wife, and another ossuary supposedly contained the remains of his child. This was a family tomb. Well, the reason you probably don't remember this is because it was very quickly discredited, disowned by the entire archaeological community, and, and uh, it quickly was forgotten. It was a hoax. But it does raise the question, doesn't it, if it were possible, and I don't imagine how this could be true, but if it were possible to prove that they had found the remains of the body of Christ, that he hadn't risen bodily from the dead, how would you react to that news? How would that change your life? Would it change your life? It's a good question to ask on an Easter morning. What difference does the hope of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ make in the way that you think, the way that you live, the way that you interact with the world around you? If Christ was not risen from the dead, would your hope in life be dead? For too many professing Christians, I'm afraid the answer would be, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, it really wouldn't make that much difference. Life would soon go back to normal. Hope is one of those intangible necessities in life. You have to have hope. It's like a lot of other necessities in life. You have to have air to breathe. You have to have food. You have to have water. You need these things. You can't live without them. And interestingly, for human beings, we need to have hope just like we need to have air and water and food. That's what makes us different from the animal kingdom. Our pets don't need hope. We do. In Ecclesiastes, it says that God has put eternity in the heart of man. What that's referring to is this image of God that every human being bears to one degree or another, that there's a sense that there's something beyond this material universe. Yes, people deny it, but there's a sense that there is an eternity out there, that there is something beyond what we can sense with our five senses. And there is more to existence than the 50, 60, 70, or 80 years we have on this planet. Reminds me of a, a news story I heard many years ago about a beautiful, picturesque little uh, village in New England that was at the center of a beautiful valley. But what happened was that the government decided they were going to build a hydroelectric dam at the end of that valley and eventually flood the valley. And so they notified the residents of this little town and said, you're going to have to move. It's going to take a few years to build this dam, but, but just wanted you to be aware that you're going to have to move by the time we're ready to flood the valley. What was interesting is what happened to that beautiful little town during those few years that the dam was being built. People stopped taking care of their yards, stopped doing landscaping. They stopped fixing their houses, stopped painting them. Very quickly, this beautiful little town deteriorated, and it became an eyesore. And when I read the article, I purposely wrote down a quote that one of the residents gave. They Somebody asked them about this transformation of the little town, and this was the quote from one of the residents. He said, where there's no faith in the future, there's no reason to work in the present. Where there's no faith or hope, I would put in there, for the future, 
There's no reason to work in the present. As we come to this glorious resurrection passage in John chapter 20, John asks us to focus in on Mary Magdalene, to view the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the perspective of Mary. She was, amazingly, the first witness to the resurrected Christ. A very, very unlikely choice. But she was the first witness to see Christ risen from the dead. And in her, as we put ourselves in her shoes and see things as she saw it, we see what it's like to have your hope dashed and killed and destroyed and then reborn, resurrected. We know from the other Gospels that other women had gone to the tomb. But John is typical of him. Have we seen this many times? John focuses, focuses in on unique details. He knows that we know the other stories from the other three Gospels. He's writing much later. And so he pulls out details about Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection that the other Gospel writers don't focus on. They don't tell us about. And it's the purpose is to teach us, to show us themes about his Gospel that he's been stressing over and over. And he does it by choosing Mary Magdalene. Now, we know that she, there were other women there because she actually alludes to it. In verse 2, it says, we don't know where they had laid him. So we know that she was at the tomb with other women. But John wants us to keep our focus on Mary Magdalene. Because I think he wants us to see this from a very personal, very emotional perspective that Mary has in this whole scenario. When Jesus died on the cross, that was the death of the hope of Mary Magdalene. Her hope for life was gone after he died on the cross. We don't know much about Mary's relationship with Jesus, but it's clear that she was one of his closest disciples. She had a dramatic conversion. Everything we know about Mary Magdalene, we know from these accounts of the crucifixion and the resurrection, except for one very brief verse in Luke chapter 8 that tells us a little bit of the background. And in that verse, all it tells us about Mary Magdalene was that she was one of a group of women who accompanied Jesus as he went around teaching and doing miracles. Let me uh, read you the phrase. It says in Luke 8 that as Jesus traveled around from town to town, he was accompanied by his 12 disciples and some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. And these women supported him and served him as he did his ministry. In particular, Luke says, and he singles out Mary Magdalene and says that she had seven demons cast out of her. I don't know what it would be like to be possessed by one demon, but Mary Magdalene was possessed by seven demons, and Jesus had freed her from that completely. And she was very close to him. She accompanied him throughout his ministry, even to the point where she was one of those few people standing at the foot of the cross when he was crucified, as we saw a couple weeks ago. And we saw last week that she stayed with the body of Christ after Christ was crucified, after he died, after he was taken down. She stayed with him until the stone was rolled in front of the tomb. And as soon as the Sabbath day was over, she and these other women came back to the tomb on the first day of the week because they were concerned that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had not finished and completely done the work of preparing the body for burial because they had to hurry so much to get the body in the tomb before the Sabbath started on Friday afternoon. 
But as these, as these women come into the garden where this expensive tomb was located, they see from a distance that the stone has been removed. Matter of fact, the language here says, the original language says that the stone was lifted up and removed. Almost get the sense there was some explosive power that removed that stone. And there's this gaping hole at the, at the, at the, at the, open of the to, opening of the tomb. Well, what we know from putting the, the gospel accounts together is that the rest of the women go towards the tomb to inspect it. Mary was distressed and turned around and ran back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples her conclusion. And she comes to a very logical conclusion that somebody had stolen the body. Grave robbing was very popular in that day, especially if it was a rich man's tomb, which Jesus' tomb was. So she, she very understandably says, the body's been stolen. She runs back to tell the disciples. And the other women go to the tomb. The other gospels tell us that the other women meet angels there who tell them that he's been raised from the dead. But Mary doesn't hear this. So she runs back to the disciples. Peter and John come running back to the tomb. And John makes sure to point out that he was faster than Peter and got there first. I don't know why he felt it was necessary to get that little dig in, but glad to know the disciples were competitive too. But when they get there, they find that the tomb is empty. And John says he believed. Now, interesting little contrast is he believed, and I think what he means is he believed that what Jesus promised would happen had happened. He did believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, but he goes on to say, but they didn't yet understand that this was the fulfillment of the grand plan of the Old Testament scriptures, that this was the fulfillment of prophecies of every age, that the Messiah had conquered death. He didn't understand that yet. He didn't understand the implications of the resurrection, but he had begun to believe that he had been raised from the dead. But again, Mary Magdalene has not witnessed any of this. She comes up after Peter and John go back to Jerusalem. She comes to the tomb, and there's an empty tomb, and everybody else is gone. And at that point, she loses it completely. She weeps uncontrollably. Not only was Jesus dead, but his body had been dishonored and stolen. She had seen her Lord humiliated before the public in Jerusalem. She had seen her Lord beaten to a pulp and nailed to a cross, gasping for breath and expiring on the cross. She had seen his body taken down and laid in the tomb. And now this has happened. His body had been stolen. It's, it's the last straw. And it says that she wept. Her life was now all about yesterday. She really had no reason to go on and live for tomorrow. Her life was like that empty grave. It was cold and empty and lifeless. I don't know how your hope is doing today. But we all have to face, throughout the course of our life, we have to face hope killers. Things that come into our life that threaten to destroy our hope. Maybe it's a failure in your career. Maybe it's a relationship in your family that's failed. Maybe it's financial ruin. Maybe your health has taken a turn for the worst. Maybe it's just the aging process. And you're realizing that the days in front of you in this world are much less than the days behind you. Or maybe it's facing the death of a loved one 
or maybe your own death. I don't know what's threatening to kill your hope today, but I just want you to put yourself in Mary Magdalene's shoes and understand that everything she's given her life to is now gone. And she has no hope. Her hope is dead. She loved Jesus deeply, and she couldn't let him go. So she clings to the memory of hope. Does that ring a bell with you? Does that that feel familiar? Clinging to the memory of hope? When hope is gone, you still... It's like it's the only thing that's left is this aura, this scent, this, this feeling that you used to have. And you cling to that memory of hope. And I think that's what she's doing here. We get the sense that Mary Magdalene was a totally sold-out disciple. She had left everything to follow Christ. She had given herself totally to him in thankfulness for what he had done for her, freeing her from the demons, freeing her from her sin and the penalty of her sin, giving her life. But now that he was dead, what did any of that mean? Jesus had died, but her love for him hadn't died, and what was she to do with that? Several years ago, my family and I had the chance to make a trip to Scotland. We actually visited some family in the British Isles, and our family, extended family, asked, well, what would you like to do with your time here? And I didn't want to be pushy, but I said, you know what, I really, this may be my last chance to ever do this, I'd really like to go to Edinburgh, Scotland. It's a place that, ever since seminary, it's a place I desperately wanted to go and see. I loved what I learned about Presbyterian history, about those who stood for the faith against tremendous persecution. I wanted to go and see the churches where the Reformation took hold in Scotland and to celebrate kind of our ecclesiastical and theological background. And so one of the places, probably the highlight of the trip to Edinburgh, was to go to Greyfriars Church. And I don't know if you know anything about Presbyterian history, but Greyfriars Church is a very important location. And that was where the National Covenant, the the Scottish Presbyterians signed the National Covenant where they committed their country to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That was where they kept the prisoners, the the English uh, dragoons had kept the prisoners when they were persecuted. And so I wanted to go to this church. And so when we got there, there was a very nice tour guide and and she, he's leading me around the church and showing me all these different parts. And I kept peppering him with questions about the Scottish Reformation, about the Covenanters, about the early Presbyterian history. And after a little while, he just shook his head and he said, you know, I, this is great. He had all the answers, but he's like, I'm just really enjoying this because pe- tourists, when they come anymore, they don't want to know this stuff. They don't know any of this history. They, I, I just love the fact that you know this and you want to know about it. And I, he's very happy to answer the questions. And I said, well, what questions do they ask you, or why do they come? And he said, well, usually they come to find out about Greyfriars Bobby. And I said, what's Greyfriars Bobby? He said it was a dog. And then he proceeded to tell me the story. The story was that there was this stray dog in Edinburgh who was adopted by one of the well-loved, well-respected policemen in town. And then when that policeman died, they buried his body in the graveyard around Greyfriars Church, And every day, that stray dog, who now again didn't have a home, every day he would come into the graveyard and lie on top of the grave to be close to his master, who was buried there. He said, that's the big tourist attraction to Greyfriars Church. Now, I have to admit, you know, it's kind of an inspiring illustration of devotion, isn't it? It's also kind of pathetic, isn't it? I mean, this dog, now he's homeless, his master 
is in the grave, what hope does the dog have? As, if, as I said, dogs don't have hope. But if he did have hope, what hope could he possibly have? Well, isn't Mary in this situation kind of like Greyfriars Bobby? She's sitting outside the tomb of Jesus, weeping uncontrollably. Remembering the hope that she had before Christ died, but now saying, what do I have? Nothing. You know, when I think about it, when, when you think your hope's either dying or dead, we sinners tend to have three reactions. The first reaction is to run away. And that's what the, the ten disciples did, besides John. They ran away. We tend to want to go run to something to find some hope somewhere in this life. Some of them went back to fishing. I don't know what some of the others did. But you run away, hide, try to escape from the dying hope or the death of hope. In this day and age, we call it going on a diet or working out at the gym or working overtime or watching a lot of TV. Just something we can devote ourselves to to help soften the blow of the loss of hope. The second way to respond is to do what Judas did, which is self-destruction. I mean, when you really lose hope, that's really the last resort, is to destroy yourself. Now, some people do it in a brief moment, like Judas did, by committing suicide. Other people do it slowly and by degree over a long period of time through illicit sex or drugs or alcohol, but it's just a way of dealing with the dying of hope. Or you do what Mary did here, which is just weep and desperately try to hold on to the memories of the hope. How many times have you watched a movie or a television program where some character in the, in the story dies and people come alongside them to comfort them as they grieve over the death of the loved one and they'll say to them something like, as long as you remember them, they're still alive. The memory of hope becomes the only hope they have. And I'm sorry, but if in the face of death, if that's your only hope, that's pathetic. It's no more admirable than Greyfriars Bobby sitting there on the grave of his master. Death will make you deal with where your hope is. Either your own death or the death of someone close to you will make you deal with where your hope is. And if your hope is in anything in this life, then death will come along sooner or later and say, you're lost. You've got nothing. There is no hope. The only solution is to find a reference point for your hope that is outside of this world, that is outside of this lifetime. And that's what Mary Magdalene found. Her hope was resurrected in this beautiful, glorious little story Mary, as she weeps uncontrollably, looks into the tomb and she sees two angels. Now, she didn't react like a lot of us, a lot of us would react when you see angels, so it makes us wonder, did she really recognize they were angels? We don't know if maybe their glory was hidden in some way. She didn't seem to recognize they were angels. And they ask her why she's weeping, and so she repeats her desire to find the body so that she can give it an appropriate burial. But as she's talking to the angels, she senses a presence behind her, and And she looks and she sees the person behind her, but she doesn't recognize him. And that's one of those little mysteries about the body of Christ after the resurrection is that on several occasions, people who knew him and loved him didn't recognize him, like the men on the road to Emmaus, 
like the disciples as they were on the boat out on the sea, it wasn't uncommon for them not to recognize him first. Now, I don't know what that means. I don't, I don't know if anybody really does know what that means. But at first, she didn't recognize him, and because she was in the garden tomb, she thought, well, it must be the guy who takes care of the garden. And so he says, she says to this person she thinks is the gardener, please tell me where the body is so I can take care of it. And I just love the way that Jesus reveals himself to her. He just very gently, lovingly says, Mary. He just says her name, like I'm sure he said it many other times. And it's like the scales fell from her eyes. And she saw him as the resurrected Lord in a moment. Can you imagine what that moment was like for her? He was alive. I'm sure she didn't understand the implications at the moment, but he was alive. Her hope is reborn in a moment as he calls her by name. Reminds me what Jesus said in John chapter 10 when he said, The good shepherd calls his own sheep by name, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. He had removed the scales from her eyes, he'd opened up her ears, and she heard and she understood. And she cries out to him, Rabboni. And that's not the typical rabbi, which means teacher in Aramaic, but Rabboni is kind of an intensified version of rabbi. In other words, not just a teacher, but master. It speaks of great love and devotion and admiration as she realized that Jesus has been raised from the dead. What a picture for us of our own call. We call this, in theological terms, the effectual call of Christ. We all experience that. If you know Jesus Christ today and you walk by faith in him, there is at one point in your life where you heard him call your name, so to speak. Where he called you and the scales fell off your eyes, your ears opened up, and you saw him for who he really was as the scriptures reveal him. As he called Lazarus out of the tomb, he has also called all of us out of death and darkness and meaninglessness and purposelessness to himself as our risen Savior. For many years, the words of Jesus to me were just like some gardener, like, what does he have to do with me? What difference does it make? But one day, when he spoke to me and called me lovingly by name and opened my eyes, I saw who he was, and my life was turned upside down. Do you remember that moment in your life? Do you not remember that moment in your life? Are you hearing it maybe this morning on Easter Sunday? Maybe Christ is calling your name. And if you respond, you'll see his glory as the risen Savior, the Son of God who came and dwelt among us and was fully God and fully man and died on the cross to pay for our sins and was raised from the dead victorious over sin and death. That's what Mary saw. In verse 17, Jesus says to Mary, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. The older translations, I think, did us a disservice because the older translations said, Do not touch me, and made a lot of people think, Well, was there something dangerous about touching Jesus? Was that his resurrection body somehow, would she get zapped or something? What would happen if she touched him? That's not what it's saying. In the, literal, in, the, in the original language, it's that in the ESV does a good job of translating it there. It's, stop clinging to me. Stop grasping me. And you get the picture in your mind that she was hugging him very tightly. You're back, Jesus. This is great. Everything can go back to the way it was. And Jesus is saying, 
wait, hold on, hold on a minute, Mary. You have no idea. You have no idea. It's not going to go back to the way it was. I'm not going to be walking around doing miracles and teaching in the villages anymore. I'm going to ascend to my father. And Mary, you have no idea what that means for you. This is going to be so much better than having me here physically where you can see me and touch me. Matter of fact, if you go back to chapter 16, Jesus explained it clearly to his disciples there. He says, in, beginning in verse 5, Now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. That's what Mary is hearing when Jesus says to her, stop holding on to me. We're not moving backwards now. We're moving forwards into a far greater experience of what it means to walk with me. And he really is going to mean it in a much more intimate way. I will be with you always, even to the end of this age. Realizing that Jesus had been raised from the dead turned Mary's life upside down. How would your life be different if he hadn't been raised from the dead what difference does it make that he is risen from the dead in your life ecclesiastes portrays for us that whole book portrays for us a life under the sun it keeps saying under the sun in other words what if there's no reality above the sun what if there is no creator what if there is no son of god what if there is no throne in heaven what if there is no risen savior who has paid the price for our sins. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is kind of about. And how does it summarize life under the sun as if there were no reality above the sun? All is vanity, empty, purposeless, without hope. But Jesus is risen from the dead. The resurrection of Christ, basically what it does is it changes your whole reference point, the very reference point of your life. It is now now no longer in your job. It's now no longer in your friends. It's now no longer in your family. It's no longer in your bank account. Your reference point for life is now the throne in heaven where he has ascended as our risen Savior. That's what Paul is getting across in that glorious chapter. Here's your chapter for devotions today. 1 Corinthians 15, let me read to you a few portions. First of all, that passage that Tom read earlier. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied even more than Greyfriars Bobby. If only for in this life we have hope in Christ, then we are to be pitied above all men. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
Later in that same chapter, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Do you remember how the chapter ends? All that glorious picture of Christ resurrected and us being resurrected in Christ. Do you remember how the chapter ends? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He is risen. Let's pray. Father, we so desperately need hope in this life. And we thank you that Christ has conquered death that he paid the price for our sins and that he was raised for our justification and that he has ascended to your right hand and he is now Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He is our Lord and he is the reference point of our lives and he is our hope. Thank you for the confidence that we have in him to live boldly for the kingdom. We pray in Christ's name, amen.